the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Some uh, years ago, circa 2006 or so, maybe 2007, that date rings a bell. That year rings a bell. The great American historian David McCullough was testifying before the United States Senate. And he said, for all the concerns we have about illegal aliens in this country, uh, we are in our United States schools, particularly with the study of history, creating aliens of our very own students. We are graduating them as aliens to a country they do not know indeed for all the hand-wringing we do over such things as math and literacy scores or (coughs) English or reading arts scores, the National Assessment of Education Progress, the nation's report card, makes American history, shows that American history for our high school seniors is actually their worst subject with 50% of them. Half of our American high school graduates leaving high school with an F in American history. Someone who gives a damn about that is my friend Richard Samuelson, an associate professor of history at California State University, San Bernardino. You uh, have heard him on this show. He is a regular contributor to the Claremont Review of Books and other journals and has a piece at Real Clear Politics. How should slavery, Jim Crow, and racism be taught in schools? Because there's this myth that conservatives are trying to eliminate parts of the American story, parts of American history. It's not true. Our plea is to please teach American history. (laughs) Richard, welcome back. How are you, Professor? Very well. Thank you very much. That's a terrific quote uh, by McCullough. (laughs) It really is. It really is. Um, I'll send you that transcript of that hearing if it interests you. It was pretty – it's something I go back to from time to time. How should slavery, Jim Crow, and racism be taught in schools? Let me start this way, Professor Samuelson. Uh, And thank you for joining us and your piece. Thank you for having me. You bet. Always. so I did a survey some years ago, around that same time, I did a survey of American history textbooks for a project I was working on. And I have to tell you, there's not a one of them that wasn't teaching Jim Crow or slavery. Not a one. And as I recall it, one of the standard history textbooks, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're, you're the far deeper expert on this, was, it might have been called, it had various names over the decades, but it, and it had various editors, but it was known as the Commager uh, Samuel Eliot Morrison book, Concise History of the American Republic. That, I thought, was the dominant American history textbook for many years up until probably about 1970 or so. covered slavery and Jim Crow. It covered all this stuff. What the hell is the other side talking about, Richard? Well, I guess they're talking about they didn't do it right. Okay. Um, it's also the myth there's a difference between what's emphasized in the classroom and what's in the textbook. Fair enough. Um, and I don't know how they were teaching. Um, That's a fair point, by the true. way. That's a very fair point. It's true that we always did teach about slavery and racism and Jim Crow, but the amount of emphasis given to it has changed. And you're right, even even in that book, for the middle of the 20th century, it was already very much part of the curriculum, um, at least everywhere except the, the South, which still had Jim Crow, mm-hmm. until, well... 
like 50, 67. Yeah, I was going to say, we, we could probably use a date of 67 or so to be, yeah, somewhere yeah. around there, right. But um, but the other thing is the um, values. I think what you're seeing today, though, is um, there is, as you said, there's a quote from McCullough said, they're not teaching people to appreciate America, mm-hmm. right? The story they want to say, what makes America is the New York Times 619 project, uh, that the creator put it, Racism is in our DNA. Racism is what makes America, America. Well, I don't think that's true, um, but I think that's the way a certain number of historians, history teachers today are teaching it. It's kind of the Howard Zinn approach, um, the um, far leftist who wrote The People's History of the United States, his approach to America applied to race. Um, and what they want is a history teaching that focuses mostly on our sins, and that is unlikely um, to take. You wonder why people aren't paying, aren't learning American history. It's partly because who wants to spend so much time learning that? Right? You spend time learning about your sins, certainly. But it seems to be the story is you start in 1776 when all 13 states had slavery, and then within a generation and a half or so, every state in the North had banned slavery couple more generations after the Civil War. Slavery is banned in the South. And, of course, you have Jim Crow until, as you said, 67, say, right? But the story is the founding essentially put the principle of declaration in our DNA. And that, seems to me, should be the heart of the story, right? But what we're actually learning is the second half. A friend at a major national university, I'll just put it that way, said they, they, they have a, a test for incoming students. The only two things they're guaranteed to know is Martin Luther King and Susan B. Anthony. The only question that routinely gets 90-plus percent recognition of people coming out of high school to a major national university. Right? So they're not really learning much at all. I'm surprised they're learning Martin Luther King. I'm grateful. Maybe that's going to change. Yeah, you know that's going to change too. I, I love it. Susan B. Anthony too. But um, that is that is that is you're getting to you're getting to the heart of what the darkness is here. Richard, aren't you when you, when you, when you talk about the emphasis? So, even before, well, I'm I'm kind of caught on the Howard Zinn notion because I almost think he's been surpassed in a way uh, <laughs> with you know literal. We've gone. <laughs> everyone's taught that socialism is the midway to Marxism. Zinn was the midway to 1619 and critical race theory is my thesis. But let me. Yeah, exactly. So, but let me let me put it let me let me let me try this on you because one of those worst things is let's say the sixteen nineteen effort, the sixteen nineteen project, because in your concluding uh, in your concluding paragraph, you you mention as the Declaration is our founding document, equality, not racism, is our DNA. That is the point of sixteen nineteen to take to take equality out of our beginnings and make the country make our students know. Learn and then know that our country wasn't founded in freedom and equality. It was founded in slavery and misery. Right. Isn't that I, the point? I, that's the point, I think. I wonder if it's, it's piggybacking for a deeper agenda, right? Okay. And that is the agenda is that the principles of the founding were bad. Right. And they were bad because they included slavery. Right. And the problem is that's not quite the story. I mean, the story is the principles were introduced in 76 in a country where slavery was legal everywhere. And human beings being what they are, creatures of habit and cultures existing, it is not something that's going to end tomorrow. 
historical change doesn't happen that way. It takes time. And I wouldn't be surprised if a couple hundred years, historians are saying, you know, the founding period was basically from 76 to 1865 when the Civil War ended. Oh, good. Right? And that's not that long in you know, historical time no, right. for such a major transformation. As, uh, ending, in, you know, in, in, in a country that has maintained a singular constitution. It, it, yes. it, it, it's more than it, it, it's more than than a little a little honorable and noble, but one of the things you get to, and I want to spend some time with you on this, if you have uh, time for it, Richard. Sure. You said something I have been begging people to get on board with, uh, and you 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 wrote it. Uh, so thank you for 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 doing it. And it's this notion that if you listen to the his revisionists today, the CRT, 1619, Zinn, BLM curricula types, and their indictment of America. It does have precedence. It's just not the American history textbook of yore where that precedent comes from. The precedence of America's founding being steeped in racism and its constitution designed to preserve racism, as you hear from 1619 BLM and the like, that has a precedent, and that precedent is in the American Confederacy. That was their view of the founding. It was not Lincoln and Frederick Douglass's view. Let me just make it one step further, because they want that the dominant view. When in point of fact, again, you're the expert, you correct me if I'm wrong, the winning side was the majority of America, the majority of states, the majority of soldiers, the majority of America. They are trying to take the minority losing side's ideology as the new dominant ideology of today's America, Richard. And I think that's a historical as well as moral crime. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a, one of my favorite Frederick Douglass quotes, which actually got from, um, I'm pretty sure it's Sean Wilentz's book on um, the, sla- the Constitution and um, Constitution itself and slavery. Um, called um, No Property Man. And Douglas said, when he was initially a radical who supported William Lord Garrison, right. thought the Constitution right. was bad because right. it allowed slavery, and he said, I'm, I'm moving to the more moderate camp, Lincoln's camp also, um, because he said, I'm sick and tired. He said, I'm tired of uh, being on the slaveholder's side. The slaveholders maintained the Constitution was pro-slavery. Right. Just right. as and, William and, Lloyd and, Garrison did. Right. Right. And, right, and the, the far, well, the, the radicals like Garrison did. And the, Let, let me the, point out, William Lloyd Garrison shreds the Constitution, right? Doesn't he tear it up? Yeah. Yeah. Tears up the Constitution, and Frederick Douglass would go on to say the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. I have to take a quick break. You can stay a little bit? Sure. Thank you. We will be right back with more from Richard Samuelson. Professor of History at California State University and author of a great piece, important piece, at Real Clear Politics, How Should Slavery, Jim Crow, and Racism Be Taught in Schools? It's tautological for me to say an important piece. I don't bring on guests who don't have important pieces. Richard Samuelson and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Our guest is uh, Professor Richard Samuelson from the University uh, Ca- uh, University at uh, San- uh, California San, Bernardin- San Bernardino. It's a mouthful. Sorry, Richard. And Cal State San Bernardino. Cal State San Bernardino. Sorry. Uh, we're talking about his great piece, How Should Slavery, Jim Crow, and Racism Be Taught in Schools over at Real Clear Politics, just published. And we were talking about 
um, the the march, the long march of progressives who have, uh, I suppose, perhaps started with, uh, where would you peg the beginning of this, John Dewey, but really in, uh, in, in practicality with Howard Zinn. But that is, I think, transformed into things far worse. If we thought they couldn't be worse, they could be worse. And they have transformed into things far worse. But you make an interesting and good point, Richard, uh, in your piece that I don't think enough people have grasped uh, uh, have grasped which is which is the the introduction of a child to history and the whole point of teaching them American history will you get into that a little bit for us the mind shaping of the de novo student yeah I mean there are a few reasons you teach history but one of them you teach the history of the United States um, to kids to introduce them to their own country right human beings being tribal part of our identity is how we understand our own past and remember we're starting with students who don't know any American history and I think the, the radicals we're hearing, the, the critical race theory people, the way, and the way they want to teach U.S. history is as if they're teaching people who were raised in Alabama, white kids raised in Alabama in the 1950s and now in college, and they're trying to push all the way back. But that's not where they are. We're starting with kids who don't know anything. So you want to start with, you start with the basics, teach them what's good about America, because that's the way we're all in this ship together. So you start with, rather than, yes, you teach about Jim Crow, but it seems to be the way to teach it is we started with slavery legal everywhere in 76 and got rid of it. Start with the common story of us working together, right? And that's how you raise the American citizenry that can get along. We have certain values we share, right? And those values come out of the American Revolution, um, and they are applied better to Martin Luther King. Reverend King called them a promissory note in the Declaration, the marker that we put down to move in that direction. And that's what we have in common as a people in our history. We can see this unfolding, right? And you know, the people who are on the outs are the Confederates mm-hmm. and the support of Jim Crow South. Okay, that's fine. But there are thankfully not so many who are going to want that. You know, there's going to be people who feel alienated from however you're taught. The way they're teaching it now, they're getting... I think a lot of white kids to simply say, oh, that's my team. Mm-hmm. And then you have the kids that once, I forget what state it was, wearing White Lives Matter t-shirts, right? Presumably to push back, because what do you expect kids to do? They're going to say, well, if the essence of the country is racism and I'm white, okay, that's my team, right? You, you want to raise kids to understand their common citizenry, right? They're, they are, in fact, teaching a neoconservative. Boy, boy, you make an important point here that I've never made uh, or thought of, and, and thank you for it. There, the two sides then, really, that are taught here is um, slave and master. American history has been reduced to you either were a uh, uh, part of the master class or the slave class. In other words, all of American history is now being filtered through a um, what would you call it lopping off of the country, the entire country's history then. Uh, is based on the fact that there was a confederacy and that <clears throat> it had slave owners and, and slaves. Right. Nothing about the North. Nothing well, about the, the Union. North, nothing about there Lincoln. There was racism. Right. And there was discrimination. There wasn't slavery. Right. Um, but there was much less imperfect than the South. Yeah. Right. And it was building forward. You can't start from, you know, where they were in 76. The French Revolution boiled over. They got the king back. Right. Right. The, 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 and, and your king point is such an important one in relation to the point of American history, a common culture, a uniting, um, a uniting pedagogy. 
it's my thesis, it's my thought, Richard, that one of the reasons Martin Luther King became so esteemed and that we esteem him so much is that he marched and taught civil rights based on that very concept. He gave us a value, if you will, or virtue or value that we could all seize on because right. it took us back to our declaration when he when he constantly quoted the Declaration of Independence or that promissory note that you mentioned or standing in front of Abraham Lincoln's memorial. This was something all Americans could could, could grasp. Who wants to be against the Declaration of Independence and Lincoln? He understood that. Right. And that's why we could unite around it. And that's why I say I'm surprised they still know Martin Luther King, because my experience is he's on the outs because of the very point I just made. You know, Frederick Douglass is almost completely ignored, yep. or is completely ignored, after right. which by the Times in the right. 1619 Project, right. but I think for a similar reason, a parallel right. reason. Right. Um, and I, I think that that's true. But you remember, the other thing is, in 1964, when the U.S. passed the Civil Rights Act, the country's 88% white. Yep. Why would they do that? Right. They had been trained in this self-understanding and the, the question to make a light bulb go on and say, oh, we better live more in accord with those principles. And this is the, the, the intellectual side of critical race theory. It doesn't believe in those principles. That's right. right. It's based on rejection of 76. Now, they have a different understanding of equality. The problem is I don't think it's one compatible actually with civic equality. No, it's not. And they're saying this weird thing now. You hear this from Ibram Kendi. You hear this from this uh, Dr. Love, who's got this abolitionist uh, education organization, the Department of Education got got, got caught up in. Um, you have them saying things like, when, I, when, when a white person says, I believe everyone is equal, or all lives matter, you know you're talking to a racist. They have made the Declaration of Independence, very articulate principle, a thing of racism. <laughs> and I think you know, there are two elements. That's that another true. reason King is out, because that's what King said. Right. It's, it's interesting. It's not true. It's also not going to work. Yeah. You're not going to produce unity. You're not going to produce progress. Now we still have ways to go in race this way. Uh, you have to work with the situation at hand. Work with the American people. So tell me about your profession. Our guest is Richard Samuelson. He's a professor of history at Cal State University, San Bernardino, contributor to the Claremont Review and many other journals, his piece in Real Clear Politics. Tell me about your profession for a second, Richard. Would you say your professional organizations and, and, and the teaching profession of American history generally, would you say that people are going into it for the purpose of teaching history or for the purpose Mark said in his notes on Feuerbach to change it? Right. Well, there's, there, there, there's a, two questions there. One in the background, I'll be very quick. Intellectually, right, we are trained to be scholars and researchers, those through the PhD programs. Yep. And then our primary job for many of us is to teach, and there's a tension there. Um, and then for those teaching, I've noticed, I think the last generation or so of scholars, maybe the last 10 years, there really is an emphasis on seeing yourself as an activist. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to, well, when you start with the premise, you no longer believe there is, forget objectivity, which is a problematic concept. There is a common sense understanding that you're basically making sense, and yes, there's some plausible questions at the margins. But when you question that there's any common sense understanding of uh, a relatively neutral point of view, right, and you say, well, there's no such thing as a neutral point of view, all this left is activism. Yeah. And that's combined with 
ironically, the desire for moral good, which your premise had just <laughs> undermined. No, right? totally, uh, totally. But no. there, yeah, I do think, and also remember, that we are creatures of fashion. John Adams says there are two tyrants in the world. They are fashion and party. I'll leave Our it there, security. buddy. i, I got to hit the break. Fashion party. But if you want to hang on a second, we can come back sure. on it. Great. We'll be right back with more from Richard Samuelson. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It's time to not only think about about, but to rethink air conditioning in Arizona. Chris Funk and his team at Cool Touch Air Conditioning is letting you in on a little secret. Most AC units are like a light switch, either 100% on or 100% off, and the continual surges needed are huge drags on your power. Now imagine you had a dimmer switch for that AC or that light that would allow you automatically to use just the right percentage of air conditioning, like a dimmer switch. You get the most comfortable living environment and the biggest savings on your utility bills and cool touch is offering a two thousand dollar rebate on this very system but for that system or any new system or any repairs problems or inspections needed on your air conditioning unit cool touch air conditioning and plumbing is the company to go to 24 7 and customer service that when i say is legendary you're going to have to just experience to understand what I mean by that. Call them at 623-734-1932. That's Cool Touch at 623-734-1932. Or visit them online at CoolTouchAC.com. CoolTouchAC.com. And tell them Seth sent you. Our guest, Richard Samuelson, is a professor of history at Cal State University, San Bernardino. We're talking about his piece in Real Clear Politics, How Should Slavery, Jim Crow, and Racism be taught in schools. Richard, right before the break, you were about to go into an interesting distinction. I think you said it was John Adams's, if I'm not mistaken. What's going on with um, history yeah. teaching? Yes. And I mentioned we academics tend to like quotes. Adams said um, the there are two part tyrants in the universe. They are fashion and party. Mm-hmm. And our own danger, the greatest danger is when they're united, right? Mm-hmm. And even among intellectuals, perhaps especially among intellectuals, Things we think are reason are actually fads. Mm-hmm. And so when hiring is done in history departments, what gets to jobs is the more woke approaches to history. And I think it's accelerated in the last 10 years um, at most departments of history, especially now with the de- decline in number of history majors um, across the country. There are very limited resources for new jobs. And as Older historians retire rather than hiring a new person who teaches the Civil War. They'll have someone who might teach things in a time period of the Civil War, but they're really teaching about um, sexuality in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, And so there's been a, there is, we're in the process of a transformation of higher ed um, towards an approach that will render people kind of, as you said, aliens to the country, or as David McCullough said. Joseph Ellis says this approach to history is like um, bringing a hockey stick to Fenway Park. Uh-huh. I, uh-huh. Yeah, I think something like that. I'm going to use that. That's that's pretty good. Uh, Richard, I mentioned earlier that somewhere around 2006 or seven, I was doing a survey of the American history textbook or textbooks. And I concluded something then. I think I was right about then. 
but I'm no longer right about now. I'd love your view on it because I could be all wet. But what I was saying then is, yes, some of these history textbooks can be a bit tendentious, but their biggest problem, I concluded, was really that they have taken this great, amazing story, what I call the second greatest story ever told, the American story, and made it boring. My concern then was that they were turning students off by making it god-awful boring. I can't say that anymore. I do think it's tendention now. Was I right then and am I right now? Well, maybe it's both. And maybe it's both, yeah. <laughs> because they're turning people yeah. off. Because yeah, yeah. Both. It's, uh, I mean, no one wants to li- listen to an ideologue spout off all day about how awful their country is. Mm-hmm. Think of the cousin you don't like at family gatherings you don't right. want to talk to because mm-hmm. they can't right. stop talking about whatever right. it is. Uh, and um, I do wonder if that's why people aren't learning. You can't get people excited about U.S. history the way it's being taught. Right? You can get pockets here and there of interesting subjects, but I think in order to get people interested, they have to be inspired. And, um, but, of course, there's a the whole problem with our pedagogy. It's another problem. We're not requiring as much as we should. And um, perhaps that's another problem. Students are bored because they're not being pushed, and everyone's lazy by instinct with their kids, or most people are. So they're not not working, and it spirals, right? The the teaching that's being done um, of our kids in history, um, it's not doing what it should be doing, but this is going on since the Nation at Risk report from the 80s. that's right. That's right. We've been at this since 83 and maybe longer. Well, you stay at it, brother, and thank you for doing this. Thank you for this show. Thank you for your piece. Again, Richard Samuelson, Professor Richard Samuelson, How Should Slavery, Jim Crow, and racism be taught in schools. Thank you, brother. We'll talk soon. Thank you very much, Seth. You betcha. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back uh, to the Seth Leibson Show. Larry Elder is on the ballot in California. If you missed that news earlier, I was mentioning it. And not only is that a good piece of news for Larry Elder and Californians and Americans, because I think it's going to be a national leadership when he becomes governor, the good news keeps coming. Brand new poll of registered voters in California from the uh, Emerson College uh, polling organization has Larry Elder in a very comfortable lead. He is in the lead on the question, which candidate would you vote for to replace Governor Gavin Newsom if he is recalled? And Larry Elder is 10 points. He's in first place with 10 points above uh, the second and third place runners up. Uh, interestingly, Caitlyn Jenner is coming in at uh, fifth place with only 4%. I think in time, Larry is going to crush those other numbers and get the undecided vote. Probably, I'm guessing, all of it. I'm guessing all of it. This question Richard Samuelson is posing is an important one. How do you teach American history? Here's one way to teach about the Constitution and slavery. Here's my friend and yours, Christopher Flannery. I call this one anti-slavery constitution. 
August 21st was a rough day at the Constitutional Convention, meeting in Independence Hall in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. Official deliberations had begun on May 25th, but only now, three months later, were the framers officially taking up a provision that had made its way into their draft constitution, which came to be called the Non-Importation Clause. It would forbid the Congress they were designing to tax or prohibit the importation of slaves anywhere in the United States, forever. Among the many challenges to the statesmanship of these framers of the Constitution, none was more fundamental or intractable than the problem of slavery. The Confederation that had just achieved its independence was, as Abraham Lincoln would later say, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. But it had no authority to interfere with slavery in any state where it existed. Delegates of major slave states at the convention insisted they would never be part of a union that interfered with their institution of slavery. The provision before them now was written in deference to that insistence. Heated discussion erupted immediately. The first delegate to comment was Luther Martin of Delaware, who argued that allowing importation of slaves was inconsistent with the principles of the revolution and dishonorable to the American character. John Rutledge of South Carolina, a strong advocate of Southern interests, promptly responded that religion and humanity had nothing to do with this question. Interest alone is the governing principle with nations. The true question is whether the Southern states shall or shall not be parties to the Union. Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut tried to find common ground in the position of the old Confederation, that the morality or wisdom of slavery are considerations belonging to the states themselves and not to the national government they were trying to create. Charles Pinckney of South Carolina said, South Carolina can never receive the Constitution if it prohibits the slave trade. So there they were. Everyone at the convention understood that slavery was inconsistent with the principles of the revolution. No one defended the justice of slavery. Even Southern slaveholders denounced it as a great evil. But representatives of the slave states insisted that it was an evil they could not now do without and that they would not be part of the Union if the slave trade were prohibited. Finally, a committee was formed to find language that could be agreed on. On August 24th, the committee presented their results to the convention, and what the convention saw was that the very pro-slavery non-importation clause had been moved in a very anti-slavery direction. Whereas the original clause would have forbidden Congress to tax or prohibit importation of slaves into any state forever, the revised clause would allow Congress to begin taxing importation of slaves immediately and to prohibit importation of slaves into any new state immediately. Congress could begin to prohibit importing slaves in the existing states as early as 1800. So instead of a protection of the slave trade in the whole United States forever, it would be protected in the few existing slave states for 12 years. General Pinckney of South Carolina made one more push for the slave interest, proposing 1808 rather than 1800 as the year at which Congress would be allowed to prohibit the slave trade in existing states. And to this, the convention reluctantly agreed, though James Madison bitterly observed, 20 years will produce all the mischief that can be apprehended from the liberty to import slaves. Congress, true to anti-slavery spirit, 
prohibited the importation of slaves at the earliest opportunity on January 1, 1808. But as the Constitution made its way into the 19th century, radical abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison condemned it as a covenant with death because of the compromises with slavery. They urged the northern free states to secede from the southern slave states so that the free states could purge themselves of the evil of slavery. Their motto was, no union with slaveholders. The great anti-slavery activist Frederick Douglass at first agreed with that motto. But as he grew in wisdom, he found himself more in agreement with the framers. As he put it, my argument against the dissolution of the American Union is this. It would place the slave system more exclusively under the control of the slaveholding states and withdraw it from the power in the northern states, which is opposed to slavery. Fidelity to the principles of the Constitution was the true foundation of the anti-slavery cause. Rooted in the anti-slavery principles of the Declaration, the Constitution was, in Douglass's memorable words, a glorious liberty document. That's certainly one way to start it. Another way is to read the full speeches of Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King and not the edited versions that some of the textbooks are producing that only show the early views of Frederick Douglass on the Constitution before he learned further what it was about. Let me put in a good word for Trades Unlimited. Portions of this show are sponsored by Trades Unlimited for all your roofing needs. Inspection, replace, repair. Right now, their work on foam roofs is a great time to call them because foam roofs cure in the hot summer sun. If you're interested in a recoat, they are expert at that. Protect your roof before the foam beneath the coating gets compromised. And if it's not a foam roof, if it's any other kind of roof, again, repairs leaks, inspections, Trades Unlimited. That's the company I use. Don't wait until it's too late. Give them a call at 480-483-1775 or find them online at tradesunlimited.com. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. I had a liberal political science professor when I was an undergrad. I remember he said something. I don't think I understood its full impact until today in my interview with Richard Samuelson. He was lamenting the fact that Ronald Reagan was still president in 1988 or so. I don't know. Maybe it was a little earlier. And he said, I just want you to think of the damage we're doing to our Children, if you're 10, when you start becoming somewhat politically aware, then your entire youth to adulthood is informed by the Reagan administration. And I just remember him saying that, and I didn't understand how antagonistic to that point he was being. That is to say, he worried that young people were being influenced by Reaganism or by a history and presence and current events of America that was being shaped by Ronald Reagan. The left today understands that very, 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 very well. And that's why they have gone on their campaign to change, radically change education. As for me, you look at the state of American history, I'm with C.S. Lewis. For every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. We'll be talking about that tomorrow, the slumber of cold vulgarity. 
For the task of the modern educator, he concludes, is not to cut down jungles but to irrigate deserts. It's an awful lot of desert for us to irrigate. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed.